You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, hey guys, how we doing? Come on, <laughs> Come on is not a response, but okay. Awesome. Good, good, to, uh, good to see everybody. So, um, uh, so here's the deal. I, if any of you n- know me, uh, you know this to be true about me. I am a really big fan of hyperboles. So I am just oddly, uh, maybe uh, more than oddly interested in like the greatest, tallest, shortest, fattest, all like I, Guinness Book of World Records is my dream book, right? It's just my favorite thing. Like uh, greatest selling record of all time, Michael Jackson Thriller, right? Second greatest selling record of all time, Eagles Greatest Hits, not exactly sure how that happened, but, uh, you know, nobody's perfect. And uh, uh, tallest guy in the world, Robert Wadlow, 8'11 and a half, shoe size 22.5. It's amazing. I don't know why I'm so fascinated, but I just, I just Google this stuff. I just look at it on my phone and just, it makes my life better. So, uh, b- but it's not just me, right? Like I, we all sort of have this odd interest in hyperbole. That's what made the Olympics so fun this year, right? Michael Phelps, we got to watch him win his 304th gold. That was like super cool. Uh, Usain Bolt, fastest man alive. Uh, Nine gold medals, two world records. His last name is Bolt. I Googled it because I was like, is that for real? Or did he like, you know, it's like Madonna. It's not really his name, but it's his name, which gives me no hope, by the way, having last name Need Ham. But it is what it is. God destines some for one path and some for another, and I'm going to be okay with that. But when I come to the book of 2 Timothy, that same sort of excitement gets awoken in me for hyperbole. Uh, And it's because of this. Let me give you a little context, and I'll tell you why that is. Uh, So 2 Timothy is the final book that the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament. He wrote 13 letters. This is the final letter that he writes. It may have been very well the final letter he wrote, period, but certainly the final letter he wrote in the Bible. And he wrote it to this young pastor named Timothy. Now, Paul's story is like this. Around 34 AD, he gets converted, rode to Damascus. That whole moment happened. He goes 14 years into obscurity where nobody really hears from him. And then he bursts onto the scene years later, about 48 AD, and he is uh, now setting forth on his missionary journey. So he has three of them recorded in the book of Acts. On the second one of those, he uh, is introduced to a young kid named Timothy. Timothy's mother, Lois, grandmother, Eunice, both godly women, they raised him to know the Lord. And Timothy's just this remarkable kid and Paul's taken to this kid. And so he starts discipling this kid. He says, hey, come with me. So the kid and him and and their crew saddle up and they go on the missionary journeys together and he's getting to do life with Paul. They just begin to develop uh, a really deep, close friendship uh, such that Paul in one of his later books to Timothy is gonna write that Timothy is his true child in the faith is what he calls him. So there's just this interwovenness. There's this uh, father-son relationship that's happening. And when we get to the book of 2 Timothy, Timothy is now a pastor in the booming metropolis of Ephesus, which is a coastal city on the edge of Turkey. And Paul finds himself uh, in prison. 
And he's writing this letter to Timothy, his final letter to his true child in the faith, encouraging him, giving him his sort of final charge and marching orders as he does that very weighty task of pastoring the church that is at Ephesus, this very important church in a very important location. So that's sort of the scene that's set up here. And when you're coming to the book of 2 Timothy, at least I am, I am sort of asking myself the question, Whatever is about to be said, whatever the charge is that Paul is going to be bringing to Timothy in this, is this not the most important thing that Paul would have to say? Like, like certainly, like this is the last letter he's writing to one of his closest sort of comrades on the road. And, and my, my hunch is in these last words, he's going to be packing this full of these final charges that are the most important, the biggest thing, the biggest charges that he could give to a person is probably going to be found in this last letter of these last moments of Paul's life. And that's why I'm so fascinated by it, because I want to know what it has to say. And what it has to say is remarkable. We're going to see in this text that there's actually not just one charge that Paul's giving, but he's giving nine charges with sort of one emphasis. So five of the charges or commands are coming at the top of this back half of Paul's letter. And then four come at the back half of this section. But it all sort of has this main push, this main thrust. And if I could summarize it for you, it would be something like this. Paul is charging Timothy to have a vigilant, enduring commitment to proclaim the truth of the gospel at all times, to all people at all costs. That's the charge. Let me say it again. Paul is charging Timothy to have a vigilant, a watchful, enduring commitment to proclaim the truth of the gospel at all times, to all people at all costs. So that's the charge. And we're gonna look at that charge from a few different angles in this passage this morning. We're gonna, we're gonna be considering a few different things here. We're gonna be considering the weight of the charge, the offense of the charge, and the reward of the charge. The weight of the charge, the offense of the charge, and the reward of the charge. So first, let's turn our eyes to verse one and consider for a moment the weight of the charge that he's bringing to Timothy here in this text. Let's look at verse one together. Let's read these first words together. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Just let that hit you for a second. And it's possible that it's maybe not hitting you quite like Paul's meaning it to hit Timothy here. And that's probably because we don't really talk like that anymore, right? We don't really charge people with things in the presence of such and such. We're not charging people for anything unless we're selling them something, right? That's not what we do. We don't charge people anymore. In fact, as I was racking my brain trying to think of like, well, what is like a, an equivalent in our culture to this? The best I could come up with is a, a wedding, right? Because uh, in a wedding, two people are coming together in matrimony, but they don't get married in a vacuum, right? They get married with people, right? Even, even the, uh, you know, Elvis Presley impersonator weddings in Vegas require two warm bodies in the room with you as you're making this covenant. And why? Well, it's because a wedding is two people making massive commitments to each other and having witnesses present makes a statement, right? These vows 
it, it is saying these vows are serious enough that there has to be others present who are gonna verify what's being promised and hold us accountable. That's why we have witnesses at a wedding. Maybe another example uh, for you that would, would sort of help uh, put some handlebars to this whole charge mentality is like, think of a, um, a football coach, right? In the locker room, uh, they're about to take the field. It's the Super Bowl. He's with his team in a huddle back there and he's talking to him and he might say something like this. If you can imagine this scene, he might say something like, boys, the eyes of the nation are watching you. Make them proud, right? That's, what, that's what's happening here right? That, that coach is trying to evoke some sort of sense of weightiness by saying there are witnesses to this event and, and we are to act in such a way as to not let those witnesses down, right? Witnesses add a certain level of gravity to a situation. And for Paul, he's going to evoke the names of some witnesses, but he's, he's going to use the names of not just like the nation or a couple people at a wedding, he's evoking the biggest names, right? He's, he's calling out the heavy hitters for this. Let's look at, at, at what he's uh, charging Timothy, uh, how he's charging Timothy right here in this text. Um, he says it like this, I charge you in the presence of, and here are the names of God, you know him, like maker of heaven and earth, like reason you're breathing and, and here right now, like in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus. Like Jesus, the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the promised one of Israel who has come to save his people from his sins, like that Jesus, Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, what? Who is to judge the living and the dead? So not just God the Father, not just God the Son, not just even Son the Savior, but the son who is also a judge. Now, why would Paul go there, right? He could have just stopped at God and Jesus and had been done with it. And that might've had the, the gravity that he wanted, but he keeps going with this language. And he says, judge, why say judge? Well, I think there's maybe two senses in which he means it. The first is for Timothy. He's saying this to Timothy, that there is a God in heaven whose name is Jesus and he is also a judge. And your life, Timothy, is going to eventually come under the scrutiny of God's judgment. And it's supposed to produce this sense of like, will you be found doing the works of God in the final analysis? Or are you gonna be found wasting your life? Right? That's what's hidden behind this Jesus judge of the living and the dead. That's, that's one sense in which Paul means it. Now, we don't usually talk this way right? because people can get it twisted. And I'm, not, and I'm not meaning to convey that when a Christian expires on this earth, that he's going to be judged based on his deeds of whether or not he can go to heaven or hell, whether it's the wrath of God or, or the love of God forever and ever. That's been settled on the cross. And as we trust in Jesus, that's been dealt with. There is no more wrath for us, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not that sense, but there is a sense in which all of us as Christians are one day gonna stand before the judgment seat of King Jesus and our works are gonna be laid bare before him. And Paul is saying, what are those works gonna consist of in the final analysis? Will they burn up? Are you wasting your time? Or will it matter for eternity? Again, we don't talk like this, but maybe we should because 
I want that to settle in this room for a minute that like that's coming for us, right? And it shouldn't haunt us, right? It's, it's, it shouldn't like plague us, but it should give a sense of what? Gravity to the situation of how we live our lives, of how we spend our days, our time, our money, our resources, our energy, all of that. It should, be, it should be thought of by us. So that's one sense in which he means judge. But then there's another sense in which he means it, and that is for others. Right? The judgment for mankind looms in the distance. Do you realize that like every single person you have ever met have ever sat next to, have ever conversed with in your entire life, have ever seen on a movie screen, have ever befriended, have ever been within a classroom, is an eternal soul with an eternal destiny. And that person will either spend eternity gazing at, enjoying, treasuring King Jesus forever and ever with the saints of God, or that person will spend eternity as far away from the joy and presence of God as you can imagine, sitting under God's wrath forever and ever where the worm does not die. Do you realize that that's the reality? Because that's what Paul's saying. That's the reality, Timothy. This charge to preach comes with stakes and the stakes are people are perishing without the truth. And it is your job to give them the truth. They are souls that matter to God and will stand before God on judgment day. So when you go and when you think about, should I speak, should I not? You need to have these things bouncing around in your mind, Timothy. God is a judge. He's not just Messiah, but he is a judge who is, who is bringing his righteousness to bear on all of humanity. Man, I hope that lands on you this morning. It's sobering and it should produce urgency in us. That's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Spurgeon said it like this. Uh, he's a pastor in the 1800s. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Feel that. That's what we need to have a sense of with this charge. But he doesn't just stop there. He adds another and clause. Look here in the text. Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So not just Jesus and not just Jesus, the Messiah, not just Jesus, the judge even, but Jesus, the supreme king of the universe, whose reign is here and is coming whose return is eminent, like it's as sure as the rising sun. That Jesus, Paul is saying, is present now for this charge I'm giving you. This isn't a private request that Paul's making. The eyes of the most important being 
on the, in the universe are watching this moment. And that's what Paul wants Timothy to feel. And, and for you and me in this room, I think there's an application here. And, and it's like this, when I bring up evangelism, when we send out a little city post and say, hey, we're, we're, we're preaching on preaching or sharing the gospel or sharing your faith with people, like I'm willing to bet most of us in this room aren't setting our alarms early to get to church, right? Like we're not chomping at the bit to hear this kind of message. It just makes us, I don't know, like doesn't it like, it's just convicting. It's like you immediately get your sense of like, I'm failing at this. And like, you just don't want to hear it that much. And we kind of squirm. It's a little icky and just uncomfortable. And I just wonder if the reason it's so uncomfortable for us and the reason we're so trepidatious in, in being people who share our faith, if it's not because we lack a strong enough why, because right? that's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to give Timothy a sturdy, firm why to why he ought to be a preacher of the gospel. The weaker your why, the less you'll try. That's just the reality. If you don't have a substantial motive behind your actions, your actions aren't going to work if they're gonna be met with say things like opposition. John Piper, who was preaching through the beginning of this uh, book at one point, he has this great quote that has just really helped me as, as I've thought through like, why am I spending time studying things like uh, theology and doctrine and things like that? Like what's, what, is, what is the point of it? He says this, that the cure for wimpy Christians is weighty doctrine. The cure for wimpy Christians is weighty doctrine. You see this all throughout Paul's letters. Right? He's going to call us to something in the scripture and he's either going to precede it or back it up with massive truths about God. Like these, there is a God and Jesus Christ is son who is the savior, who is not just the savior, but he's also a judge and his judgment is coming to bear on the earth. And so we go and we tell because of that. His return is imminent and we go and we tell because of that. How strong is your Why? What are the reasons you have behind preaching? Because if you do some investigation, you might find that the reason that you're not as ver verbal as you'd like to be about your faith might be because your foundation is weak and squishy and not firm enough. And Paul's trying to give us some really firm foundations as we preach. Maybe your takeaway this morning is just to feel the weight of the charge this morning. Maybe that's the best thing that could happen for you this morning is to feel that gravity. So Paul lays out the motive, the, the, the reasons, the why for the charge. He gives weight to it. And then he unpacks for us what the charge is. So let's look at that here in verse two. And in its essence, it's really simple. Verse two begins by saying, preach the word. Preach the word. Now that word preach there is the Greek word keruso. And that word really means to herald or to proclaim. It's, it's, it should evoke this imagery of, of like a town crier given some news by the king to proclaim to a people, news of victory. That, that essentially what a preacher of the gospel is, is a proclaimer, a sharer of news 
a distributor of news that what we have to give is news. We're not inventing things to, to, to cleverly compel people with. We are just taking data that we've heard and we are laying it bare before people. We are heralds. We are proclaimers. We are preachers. All of us who claim Jesus as Savior. That is a reality for us. We are to keruso, to preach, to herald, to proclaim what? The word. That's the news, the word. Now, what is the word? What, what does Paul mean to capture when he says that? Because that can mean a lot of things, right? Well, if you were reading back earlier in, in this uh, letter, you would see that right before he gets to this big charge, he spends some time talking to Timothy about the word. He says this, all scripture, right, right before this, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God might be fully equipped for every good work, right? So he just came out of a moment of talking about the scriptures and how they are adequate for us, and then he moves right from that into the charge. Now preach the word, the scriptures, the full counsel of God and what he is, who he is and what he has come to do in this world. He puts some other words around it too. So like, as you're thinking about what, what he means when he says the word, all these other words could go around it and sort of fill out our understanding of it. He says uh, later in this, this same passage, he says this. He exchanged the word, the word for verse three, sound teaching. Verse four, the truth. Verse seven, the faith. What is he getting at? The word is, is, is a shorthand way of encapsulating the gospel, the narrative that, that God is trying to unpack for us in this book is the gospel, that, that we are a people created by God and for God, to enjoy God and obey God and live with God. And we spurned God and stiff-armed him and our foolish hearts, the Bible said, became darkened. And God, who could have just made us and left us, didn't he pursued us and he drawed near and he came to rescue us, condescending in the form of a man named Jesus, put on flesh, lived a perfect life in our place, took that perfection, applied it to our record, took our record, applied it to himself, bled out on a cross for six hours, absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, went to the grave, defeated death rose from the grave and left death and sin and hell in the tomb with it. That's the gospel. That's the narrative. That's the story arc of your Bible. That's the word. So when you're thinking, preach the word, you can think about it like this. Distribute that news of the person and work of Jesus. That's what we are to do. That's what Paul's saying here in the text. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. We really want to be people who preach the word. I, I, I do believe, I feel that. But we need to know that there's two things that are at play. You can't preach the word without being a person who knows the word, right? And that's one of the reasons, by the way, I'm so grateful for Stonegate. It's one of the reasons that me and Kelly have planted deep roots here is because, man, this pastoral staff has just done a, such a great job of helping our congregation care about this book because in this book is contained the words of life for us, right? 
that I, I'm just so grateful for, for a pastor like Rodney who will, who will do a good job of unpacking for us the word as it's written here, not his opinions, but what the word of God has to say clearly to us, right? We wanna, we wanna be a church that equips you so that, that you know the word in order to be able to articulate that to people. That's, that's why next week we're starting a Bible study methods course here. So this is just a shameless plug for it right now. We have a Bible study methods, eight week course that we're teaching you guys. Uh, I'll be teaching the guys for eight weeks. Kelly, my wife will be teaching the girls. I'll be going through the book of Galatians. She'll be going through Hosea. And as we're going through those texts, we're gonna be unpacking bit by bit what inductive Bible study is, how to get our hands dirty with the scriptures so that we can really understand it for ourselves, see things we didn't see originally. You use tips and tricks and methods in order to be able to, to sort of peel back the layers and see the beauty of God's word for us. That's, that's something that Stonegate has put out there for you guys to serve you so that you could be better preachers of the word by becoming better knowers and understanders of the word. And we want that for you. So that's, that's uh, I think starts next week. We have signups uh, right out in the lobby. It's 20 bucks a person. And man, we want you to be a part of it. We wanna serve you in that way. And we, and we believe that it will serve you. And so that's, that's the initial charge, right? Preach the word. And then he's gonna put some words and ideas around that initial charge to sort of characterize, to flavor it for us. And if I had to summarize for us what maybe uh, the, those uh, characterizations are, it would be this, that in our preaching, there should be a readiness and an evenness. A readiness to our preaching and an evenness. Let's look at the next words in the passage. So preach the word, and then here it comes, be ready in season and out of season. So it's interesting, those two words, the in season and out of season, are really the same word, but they only differ by uh, two letters. So in season is this word eukairos. Out of season is this word akairos. Kairos is time, like epoch, time, right? And you uh, is good, ah is bad. So basically he's saying, preach the word, be ready at good times, at bad times, convenient times, inconvenient times. Times when like, this is a no brainer. Yes, I can totally see how I can connect the truth of God's word and the truth of the cross to this person's life. Like those moments and the, I have no idea what to say to my uncle who just is complaining about his lower back pain and how do I weave the gospel into this moment? I don't know, right? Both of those times. And the truth is, most of us don't live in the opportune times. We don't live in the, the in-season moments. Most of us on the daily are in those like way out of season moments where either it's just, this person is just not opening up any inroads to the gospel or like the timing is inconvenient, right? It's a grocery run like at midnight, you know, and, and you, you got a breakfast plans and you're shopping. You're like, the last thing I want to do is talk to a human being and you bump into someone. It's like, ah, Lord, is this really a time? He's saying this is a time. That's a time. And most of us exist in those times. I wish that it was more like Acts 16. 
Remember Acts 16, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they're in the jail in Philippi and uh, they've got uh, their chains on. Earthquake happens, chains bust off all the prisoners. The jailer freaks out because he thinks all his prisoners are going away. He's about to kill himself. Paul hollers, hey, we're all here. It's a miracle. He's like, what? You're all here. He comes over to them. He's like, oh my gosh, you're all here. He's so baffled by the fact that they would all stay put that he looks at Paul and he says, what must I do to be saved? Does that happen to anyone recently, by the way? Last time I preached, it did, but most of the times it doesn't happen quite like that. Most of the time for me, it's just trying to grind it out with somebody who's either really difficult to, to converse with or like there's just not a good window of time or like they didn't ask me to talk about the Roman road and I don't know what to do if they don't ask me to talk about the Roman road. That's all I got is the Roman road. That's it, right? Paul's saying, don't let that be it. Paul's saying, strategize. Paul's saying, be, be mindful of people, of situations, of personality types, of dispositions, such that even in inopportune moments, you can be shrewd enough to show them how the cross is relevant, how the gospel is relevant to even this moment. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I posted uh, an article that I had written about this very subject. It's uh, called Five Natural Ways to Get to the Gospel. I, and it's just my attempt to sort of help us connect some of those dots so that when we're thinking about like how to strategize to get the gospel infiltrated into every moment, every situation, um, it, it sort of puts some handlebars to that. And I'm not gonna unpack all that for you now, but I will say this, we'll post that article for you on the city so you can read it and, and hopefully work toward better strategy when we're encountering people of various backgrounds and cultures and you know situations and all that. We want to equip you to be able to preach the word in season and out of season, good times and not so good times. So there's a readiness to our preaching, but there's also an evenness to our preaching. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And then this, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now that word reprove there basically means to expose or to show fault. Did you know that's one of the functions of the word of God and, and our handling of it is that we should use this word to help people by exposing faults, showing them their need for a savior. That's one of the functions of the word. Paul said, I would have not known sin, but by the law. So we unpack for them the law and the word of God to show them their need, to show our hearts our need for it. That that's one of the functions of the word. It cuts through. Rebuke means to warn. Most of the times uh, that it's used, it's, it's in the context of stern warning. That, there, that sometimes it's gonna require a heavy hand to preach the word. That sometimes it's not gonna be an easy comfort word that you have to share with somebody. It's gonna, it's gonna hurt and it's gonna warn because we are warning people about some serious stuff. Like, I don't know, like the wrath to come, right? Like big boy stuff. And, and Paul is saying, that's one of the functions of the word that we would warn, warn people even sternly sometimes about their need for a savior. But see, he doesn't just stop there. And that's what I love about Paul. There's a balance here. There is a reproving going on and a rebuking going on. But then look at that next word, exhort. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's this word, parakaleo. And if any of that sounds even a little bit familiar, you've probably heard that word when Jesus in John talks about the Holy Spirit because Jesus in John refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper or the paraclete. 
That's what the word means. In fact, 11 other times in your New Testament, that word that's translated here, exhort, is translated as comfort. So Paul's saying, we're gonna warn, we're gonna challenge, we're gonna expose fault, but you also need to know that this word of God is meant to comfort and encourage and help people. There is a both and to the preaching of the word of God. There are moments when sharing the truth is gonna cut to the heart of people's idolatries. And there are moments when, when that truth is gonna be a soothing balm for the weary sinner, right? There's a both and to it. And this is just a good word for us to, to, to know, you know, because I know there are people in this room, judgment Johnny's out there, right? Who are just like, you know who you are, right? You're, you're the guy who just can't wait for Rodney to preach a sermon on 2 Kings 2, where Elisha calls the bears out of the woods and he mauls a bunch of kids because he made fun of the prophet of God, right? You're just like, yes, justice, crush the kids, right? Well, you're, you're the guy who's just chomping at the, please bring up some controversial topic about the Bible so I can just lay the smack down on you with this amazing argument, right? You're that guy, right? I was that guy in college. It felt fantastic, but... It's unbiblical, right? It's unbiblical. And you need to hear, if you're just wrath guy and you just love having your army that's just gonna pound people to the ground, that's, that's not the function of the word. The function of the word is a both and. That we do use the word to reveal and expose sin, but there's also a level of comfort that we need to be careful to bring to people as well. But that might not be you. You might not be wrath guy. You might be grace girl. Grace girl, she only knows one verse. It's Jeremiah 29, 11, baby. And it is on her coffee mugs and it's written on the top of her journal and it's on her letter jacket. Like that is your thing. And when you talk to people about the gospel, it is always God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And that's true. But guess what? God hates your sin. But you don't get to that part. And, and this is just good for you to hear. That's doing as much disservice to this commandment as wrath guy is. It's hard to see it as that, but that's as offensive as the other side of the fence. It's a both and with preaching the word. There is a piercing and there is a mending that happens. Paul ends his charge with these words, with complete... Uh, patience and teaching. And he ends it with those words for this reason. He's about to shift gears. He's about to move into the warning part of this passage. He's about to lay on Timothy some bad news. And the bad news is basically this. Preach the word and ain't nobody gonna wanna hear what you have to say. Right? That's, that's basically what he says here. Look at verse three. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now it's helpful for me when I'm studying the word and trying to get an understanding of what the text says to, to sort of frame it like, what does the text not say? Sometimes when I do that, it helps what the text is trying to get at jump out a little bit better. So here's what the text does not say. Timothy, preach the word and you 
better turn in some high conversion numbers this week because we have a fantasy evangelism team going and I'm trying to get some points on the board, right? He seems not to be super interested in like the numbers of souls in this moment. He seems to switch right from preach the word to nobody's gonna care, by the way, right? The, the, the encouragement was not, you better save a lot of people, Tim. Look what it is saying right here. What Paul is saying to Timothy is this, preach the word and know after you preach the word that you're preaching in enemy occupied territory. And know that suffering for that is inevitable. And know that it will require from you endurance. Paul's, Paul's warning Timothy and he's warning us here. If you are fidelitous to the word of God, it will likely not go well for you. It will likely not go well for you. So this is a warning, but I also find it to be a strange kind of encouragement. And I'll tell you why. Um, I feel like this is what's sort of hidden behind that warning. So he's saying, you should expect Timothy resistance to the gospel. And here's the encouragement. That's not necessarily a reflection on your effectiveness. Man, that is such a, a balm to me. I, I, uh, I got saved as a sophomore in high school and man, I, I've just been eager to preach uh, the word since then by God's grace and have had a lot of opportunities to do that with folks in college, with, with uh, neighbors when I lived in Houston, with neighbors up here in Dallas. And man, it, I've had plenty of opportunities to share the gospel. And do you know how many of those people I uh, have shared the gospel with have actually bowed the knee and trusted Jesus after that conversation? Zero. In every moment that I've ever preached the gospel, I've never had anyone say yes to the Savior. Now, it wasn't always them throwing me the bird, right? But it wasn't a bowed knee to the cross of Christ. And man, that, that can be super deflating. It, it has been for me until I, I come to this text and I realize that's the pattern. That's the rhythm that... That, that I'm in good company if, if I'm experienced not, not the, the type of fruit I would want. And, and there are guys I'm still praying for and I'm believing that they're gonna come to know the Lord, but there's a, a, a reality here that by and large, there's going to be enemy resistance. And if you feel that and you're like me, you're like, man, I, I, I have felt like progress is just not being made. You are in good company with like everybody in your Bible, right? Isaiah. Isaiah 6, who will go for us? The Lord says, I, here I am, send me, right? I'll preach for you. Go and tell them, have eyes, but don't see. Have ears, but don't hear. Have a heart, but don't understand. They're not gonna wanna hear a thing you have to say. You're in company with Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, the, the first chapter of Jeremiah is basically this. Jeremiah, you are my prophet, son. You are gonna be preaching my word to the people of Israel. And by the way, nobody wants to listen to you and they're not gonna to listen to you. That's the, that's the first chapter of Jeremiah. You're in company with Jesus Christ. John 1, 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus, like the point of the gospel 
at the end of his ministry, he only had 120 converts. God himself, right? Like he's just not bringing down those numbers. And that should be for us a kind of comfort, right? That, that there is a pattern here. It's not just even Old and New Testament stuff. It's now. I was listening to a, uh, uh, I was watching on YouTube a lecture series by a guy named Doug Wilson, who's a pastor in Idaho. He was invited to preach at um, Indiana University Public School, very liberal university out in Indiana. And he was coming to give a lecture at a lecture hall. To, it was volunteer attendance. And his, the title of his lecture uh, was Sexual by Design. And it was basically a lecture seminar uh, about the differences in sort of the moral ethics of the Christian camp and the sort of materialist atheist uh, camp, right? And he was trying to give an account for why a uh, Christian believes what he believes and how they conclude what they conclude and an atheist or a materialist or a secularist, why they would conclude what, uh, what they do about things like homosexuality, um, uh, get the gay marriage debate, those sorts of things. It was very scholarly. He was reading from a script. It was not loud and obnoxious. It was a volunteer room of people. And I watched this from time to time and I'm fascinated by it. Not because of his argument, though it's brilliant. His argument is great. But because he can't make it through it. He can't finish his lecture because the people in the audience are literally screaming at the top of their lungs, cussing him out during his lecture. This is on video. And this isn't just like knucklehead students. This is like professors at the college, waving banners, chanting chants, totally distracting him. He got so rowdy at one point that, that an officer needed, had to be brought in and escort people out of the place. So, so our opposition has been from long ago and it's still here. I remember my, my neighbor, Jimmy, uh, years ago when I lived in uh, Katy. Man, I was getting to share the gospel with him, building a relationship with him. I came over one day. It, was, it seemed like it was going good. I had a book that I bought for him I thought would encourage him. And, and I remember he was washing his car, walked over to the driveway, handed it to him. I was like, hey, man, I uh, just was thinking about you, got you this book. He's like, hey, uh, we need to talk. He's like, it's, um, it's great that we share a fence and all. I'm happy about that. But uh, this Jesus thing, uh, it ends now. Man, so deflating, unless you realize that that's sort of the rhythm of things, that we live in enemy-occupied territory. And though there will be victories and there will be successes, there is opposition to the news of the gospel. Why doesn't the gospel win, friends? Because it speaks against everything our flesh wants. That's why. That's why it doesn't go over well. Look at what it says here. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That word passions here is epithumia, which 38 other times in your New Testament is translated as lusts. Strong desires that whatever their appetite is after, those are the people that they are gathering around themselves to preach to them. Those are the preachers that they want to hear. And this is the normal pattern of behavior for everybody on planet earth, including oftentimes the saints. We have to fight against our own old man inside of us, don't, don't we? That just longs to just, we just wanna hear what we wanna hear, man, right? At the end of the day, we just wanna hear what's gonna make us feel good about us. We lust for so many things. It doesn't just have to be sexual. We lust for power. 
And the gospel looks at us and says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. We lust to be thought of as wise. The gospel says, you have to become a fool before you can become wise. We lust for self-glory. And the gospel says in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord, there is no other. I will not share my glory with another. We lust to be in control. And the gospel looks at us in the book of John 15, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, hey, just so you know, you didn't choose me, I chose you, right? How good does that feel, right? No, Jesus, I, no, I, I, I think I got it. Like I saw you, he's like, no, 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 you didn't see me as anything. Like I came and found you, fisher boy, and I got you off the boat and I said, come with me. Like you didn't do this. You didn't chase me down, bro. I awakened you from the dead and made you follow me, right? But doesn't that just offend everything in us? We lust for control. The gospel takes that out of our hands. We lust to get the credit for making it into heaven. Isn't that just what's fundamentally at the bottom of, of every uh, worldview, every religion in the world? Isn't that essentially what's at stake, what's, what's happening there? Every, world, every religion is ultimately saying this, embrace these pillars, do these actions, embrace these set of behaviors, and in the end, it'll go well for you. That if you boil everything down, it always comes back to that. Obey these tenets and your afterlife will be fantastic. The gospel looks at us and says, it is by grace you have been saved, not by works. It is a gift of God. (laughs) No one can boast, the scripture says. No one can boast. How offensive is that to us? I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. He said the first pronouncement of the gospel is the doom and destruction of everything man esteems as great. (laughs) I'll say it another way. The gospel must first offend us before it can mend us. That's the truth. The gospel must first offend all of our appetites, all of our lusts, all of our desires and wants before it can come in and heal and mend and restore and make right. The gospel must first offend us before it can mend us. I see a couple applications here in light of that. The first one is this. If everyone likes you, you're probably not preaching the word. If everyone likes you, you're probably not preaching the word. You're either not, literally not preaching or you're not preaching the word. You're preaching something, but it ain't the word. And how do I know that? Because the scripture says it. He says, people have itching ears. They wanna hear what they wanna hear. That's the stuff that makes them happy. The gospel isn't gonna make them happy. So if everybody you know, you have a good reputation with, It's worth asking the question, am I preaching the biblical gospel? It's just worth humoring that question. Am I friends with everybody? Is there there anybody that, that has ever been rubbed the wrong way by the truth that I've unpacked for them, no matter how kind it's been? But this is not me saying, I think we should pick a fight with people. We need to operate with tenderness and meekness and love, but even the most loving expression of you have to turn from your sin, bro, or you're gonna perish. 
You need the cross. To the hard heart and the unredeemed heart, that is offensive. Does everyone like you? You might not be preaching the word if that's the case. Maybe one other application I see out of this is, is this. Don't lose hope if you don't see results because there is a reward waiting. Let me say that again. Don't lose hope if you don't see results because at the end of this, there is a reward waiting for you. Look at verse five. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And you gotta ask the question, why, Paul? Why, if you just got done telling me that nobody's gonna listen? Why would, I, why would I endure suffering if it seems like there's no fruit? Why would I do the work of an evangelist if I'm literally being stiff-armed at seemingly every turn? Why, why am I gonna fulfill my ministry and endure to the end if, if in the final analysis, it just doesn't seem to be working? He gives Timothy a fantastic reason in, in verse six. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Why do we endure? Why do we fulfill our ministry? Why do we labor as evangelists? Why do we preach the word? Why are we meek? Why do we do any of this? We do it because our reward is sure and it's waiting for us. We endure because our reward is sure. We go to the end laboring for the sake of the gospel because our reward is sure that there is a day coming that is promised in scripture, we will stand with the saints of God before the throne of God, wearing the crowns that God has given us, the crowns of righteousness, celebrating the King of glory, thankful that by his grace, he's allowed us to make it to the bitter end. We get to celebrate him forever. We get to hear that well done, my good and faithful servant. That day, Paul's saying, is coming for me. And it's not just coming for me. He said it's coming for everyone who has longed for his appearing. There is a, an award coming on that day, the crown of righteousness. There's a story about a guy named Henry Morrison and his wife, who many, many years ago were missionaries in Africa. And they were coming home from their missionary journey and they had spent their life on the field and they were just coming back done, right? They came back broke. There was no pension for Henry. Uh, they came back with all sorts of diseases that they had acquired in their stay in Africa. They had poured their life out and they were coming back bent and broken people. And on that boat, coming back, was another man, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was also in Africa. He was there for three and a half weeks. He was on a hunting safari excursion and he had bagged some animals. And he's coming back on that boat with him. And when they arrive at the docks in New York, the fanfare is unbelievable, 
right? Streamers and applause and, and a crowd to welcome Teddy back from his brutal excursion over in Africa, three and a half weeks of killing lions and tigers, right? And Henry's there with his wife and he turns to his wife and he just goes like, I can't believe this. In a moment of self-pity, he just kind of poured out his heart. And he just said, you know, I, we've given our all and we're returning home with nothing. And here this guy is, he went for sport and he receives a, a hero's welcome. He's just broken and sad. And his wife turned him and she said, you need to bring that before the Lord. Talk to him about it and see what the Lord would say. And so Henry went away for a while and processed this with the Lord. And he just brought that before the Lord. God, I've, I've given my everything to you and I'm coming home broken and empty handed. And I have nothing. And, and this guy comes and he's, and he's done nothing. And he receives fanfare and praise and acclaim. And what, what, is, what do I do? A few hours went by and he returned to his wife and his countenance, his face had changed. And she said, well, something must have happened. What happened with you and the Lord? He said, I brought that before the Lord. And I just got the sense in that moment when I was praying that the Lord saying this to me. Yeah, he is home, but you're not home yet. You're not home yet. He's receiving everything that he gets to receive. But when you get home, that's when you receive what you're getting and that's Christianity. And that's the gospel. That we labor and we fight and we endure what seems insurmountable odds. Where it seems like we're making no headway and, and we get discouraged, but we're not struck down. We're, we're crushed, but, but we're not destroyed because we are a people with a forward gaze to the promise a promise of a crown of righteousness to everyone who's longed for the appearing of God we get to stand around with the saints of God, enjoying our God forever and ever. That's the day we wait for. The reward is sure. It's coming for us and we endure to the end. Will you pray with me? Father, man, I just ask that you would um, change our minds, change our mind, God, about about sharing the truth, about uh, maybe the fears that we have to, to helping people see their need for a savior. I pray that you would be kind to us by giving us a boldness that's undergirded by a sense of the realities of your coming, the lostness of our world, and, and the sweet news at the end of it all that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And there is a crown laid up for us. And where you're at right now as you're praying, would you just ask God to help you? Maybe you're super weak in this area. This is just not your thing. Would you ask God to help awaken in you a burning in your bones to preach the word? to be ready in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with all patience and instruction. Would you ask him to do that in your heart? Lord, we really need you this morning. We pray for our world. We pray 
that more would come to know you. We pray that more would see and savor the savior of the world. We pray for our friends. We pray for our relatives. We pray for the strangers we meet. We ask you to rescue them. God, would you keep us faithful? Even if we don't get to see the results we want, would you keep us faithful to the end? We ask that in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.